This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the US Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. Today I'm joined by Kenneth Hostet, who is an HPC Systems Administrator at Ghent University in Belgium. Kenneth maintains several open source libraries for high performance computing and has given some of the best talks that I have ever seen, which is something that we'll get back to later. So first, Kenneth, welcome to RSC Stories. Thank you, Vanessa. I'm very happy to, to be here and I'm, I'm happy you like my talks as well. Let's just jump right in. Could you tell us your story and how you got to be in the role where you are today? I've been working at the HPC team at Ghent University mainly on user support for close to 10 years now. I kind of rolled into the job after finishing my PhD. And during my PhD, I was actually one of the first users of the central HPC infrastructure at Kent University. And just at the time when I was finishing up my PhD, they were looking for help with user support. And since I had a lot of experience as a user, I was a pretty good fit for that. So. Yeah, that kind of just happened and I've been happy in my job ever since. So you use the term roll into your job and that's kind of funny because I imagine you sort of rolling. Getting a job, at least in this day and age, is a pretty challenging thing. Was it sort of the, the situation that there was the perfect opportunity and you grabbed it? Were you considering other things? What was sort of going through your mind when you made that decision to make that choice? It was really a perfect opportunity and at the perfect time as well. I think I only had two or three months in between finishing my PhD and starting a new job. So it was just perfect timing and I wasn't really looking for something yet. It just happened. I found the open position. I applied for it. They were happy with me. I started and I really liked the job as well. So I've never reconsidered since then. That's awesome that it worked out so well. So I know a bit about some of your work, but our listeners probably don't or might not. Can you tell us about some of your biggest open source projects or some that you're most proud of? Specifically, what was the need that led to the development of the project? Well, the, the main open source project I'm involved in is EasyBuild, which is a tool for building and installing scientific software on HPC systems. I actually rolled into the, again, rolling into the, the EasyBuild project on the job. So EasyBuild was already there when I started in the HPC team in Ghent, but the person who developed it originally didn't have time for it anymore. It landed in my lab and we took it from there. And we also took it a step further. So it was an internal project first. After working on it for about two years, I figured it could be helpful for other people as well. So we made it available publicly. And from then on, it really exploded. A handful of people in Europe started picking it up. And from then, every year, the community has been growing and growing. We're getting lots of contributions, lots of feedback, lots of help. We're happy with it, but it's also a lot of work in keeping up with everything that comes in. But it's fun. I really like doing it. So the name implies that generally building is not easy. Do you have any sort of information about the background about how the project was started? Or did you join after that? I joined after, but I, I know quite well why it got started. When the HPC team at Ghent University started, it was just over 10 years now, 11 or 12 years. So we're quite young as an HPC team. But back then it was two technical people and one manager. It came down to one technical person in the end who had to keep the clusters rolling or keep the clusters running rather. 
installing new hardware, configuring the hardware, helping out the users, installing the software. And he quickly realized that he was never going to be able to keep up with incoming installation requests. So he started looking for tools to help him with that. He couldn't really find anything out there, which surprised him a bit because HPC wasn't new back then. So how were other people solving this? And out of pure frustration, he started working on his own tool, which became EasyBuild. Fairly quickly, when I started working in the team, it became clear to me that you really need some good tooling to automate it, to make sure you install things in a consistent way. And when you buy a new cluster and you want to give access to it to your users, you first have to reinstall all the software you've installed before. So you really want to automate that and, and win as much as time as you can with that. So it really grew out of a pure necessity. It was impossible to do our job the way we wanted to do it without a tool like this. How does easy build compare to spec? That's a very good question. <laughs> In some sense, easy build and spec are very similar. They have very similar goals. They want to ease the installation of scientific software on HPC systems. They're both implemented in Python. So even in terms of implementation point of view, they're also quite similar. But in my view, they have different goals and they are built for different use cases. So EasyBuild was their first. SPAC came, I think, three or four years after we publicly released EasyBuild. And EasyBuild was really targeted towards HPC support teams who have to install scientific software centrally on the clusters they manage, provide access to those installations to the users, and often install things that they have no clue what the software is for. So we are not, we are not the main scientists on everything that we install. So we want to, yeah, again, automate it and make it as easy for us as possible to install all that software. SPAC, on the other hand, at least in my view, is more targeted towards people who develop scientific software and need to juggle lots of dependencies, need to play around with compilers and different MPI libraries and all these things. I want a lot of flexibility there. So the biggest difference between SPAC and EasyBuild is that SPAC is very flexible in terms of versions and all the things you can tweak. Well, in EasyBuild, everything is fixed. So if I have a build recipe, which we call an easy config file in EasyBuild, and it works for me because we fix all the versions of dependencies and compiler and all this stuff, if I pass it to somebody else, it's very likely going to work for them as well. And we share all these build recipes as a part of the EasyBuild repositories. So we're actually helping out each other all the time in the EasyBuild community. If it works for me, it probably works for you. You can go ahead and test it. And if it doesn't work for some reason, it's because we overlooked something and we can easily fix it. This sharing of build recipes and sharing of a whole software stack, so a set of these build recipes, is not really happening in spec. Maybe not yet, because I think they could do it if you really wanted to. It just has a different focus. Yeah, sharing your entire cluster is definitely a non-trivial challenge. When you look at these two communities, I guess you can focus on easy build. What do you consider to be key indicators that will say something about the health of the project or the community? One of the things that I certainly worked pretty hard on the last couple of years is to try and make sure that the project can survive without myself or without HPC Ugent being involved if it would ever come to that. So I've actively recruited multiple maintainers, easy build maintainers who have full right access to all the repositories, who help out with processing incoming contributions, who help steer the project in terms of changes we make and features we implement. 
So that's been a very important thing for me. And we also try really hard to be a very welcoming community. So if we see new people coming into the project, either through the Slack channel or through the easy build, or because they make their first pull request on the GitHub repositories or open their first issue, we try to pay a little bit more attention to these new people than we do for people who we know already in the project. So we try to make sure that if they're doing something and it's not exactly the way we want it to, we try harder to explain why we want it different and why that is the case. And we try to be very patient with people who are new in the project. That's a really good strategy. I've definitely participated in projects where I was sort of the noob and I would, you know, not find a page of documentation or miss a detail and they'd be like, it's right here. Can't you see it? And it would feel sort of like, oh, sorry, I'm so sorry. And it definitely wasn't encouraging to eventually contribute. I think that that's a very important point. You should always try to look at the situation from the point of view of the person you're trying to help. And that doesn't only apply to easy build and newcomers to the project, but also to the HPC support we give. So we help out scientists on a daily basis with problems that they have running their software on the cluster. And as a user support person, it's very important that you try to look at things from their point of view. Most likely, they are not experts in computer science, or maybe they don't even know the difference between a node and a core, or the difference between memory and hard drives, it's all storage. So things like this, you have to take into account. Don't make too many assumptions about what people know or should know, but just try to help them and try to feel how experienced they are. And another thing I always do when I sit together with scientists who want to use our infrastructure and have some bigger project they have in mind, I always ask them to explain their research to me as they would explain it to a five-year-old, because that helps with getting some basic terminology right. And it also helps to get a view on how proficient they are with running software on an HPC cluster. That's really helpful for me as well. We've sort of touched on two, at least what I see as two different job areas. You've mentioned things about working on software, which might be something that a research software engineer would do. And of course, you've mentioned being an HPC administrator and helping your user base. How do you draw the line or is there one between an HPC administrator and a research software engineer? That's a good question. So up until I read about your work about remote RSE or research software engineer role, I didn't really think of myself as that type of person, but the more I start thinking about it, or the more I think about it, the more I realize that's really what I do. Even though my official title is HPC system administrator, I'm mostly helping out users in one way or another. And maybe I'm not actively developing software for them in terms of the research they do, but I do work hard on EasyBuild and I do whatever I can outside of the domain expertise to help them forward. In Ghent, we don't really have a strict line between the two roles. So everybody in our team, except our manager, has admin privileges on all of the system. So whenever we need to do something to help out the user, we usually can. But that doesn't mean I'll go reboot random servers and pretend I know what I'm doing to reconfigure the storage or anything. So we have experts in our team who work on that. But whenever I need to do something to help out people, I can. I think that's important. I know other teams work in a very different way, so they have a strict line in between the real sysadmins and the people who do the actual user support. And whenever they need some change that requires admin privileges, they have to open an internal ticket or ask for permission or, or whatever they have to do, which is good for several reasons, but it's a totally different way of working. 
Yeah, I think you're touching on something that's common that it really varies between different institutions and even within people that on the outside may have the same job title, but are actually doing very different things. To throw another piece of salami into the sandwich, how does being an open source maintainer sort of further add to those two roles? It's a totally different world, I think. As an open source maintainer, you really don't know what's going to come in in terms of contributions. You have people coming in from all over the world who are maybe experts in installing scientific software, but have never seen easy build or don't know how it works internally. I guess it's different in the sense that usually you're talking to people that speak the same language. So you're usually talking to system administrators or people that have some experience with running HPC systems and installing stuff on them. Working with scientists and doing user support, it could be quite different. The scientists typically and hopefully care about the science of their research and not so much about the running their scientific software efficiently on the system. They just want to get the job done. They want to get their scientific results. That's what they care about. And whether it runs in one minute or two minutes or maybe one hour, they don't really care. They want to get the results that they care about. This is something that maybe more HPC admins need to realize that to many scientists, the HPC infrastructure is just a tool, sort of similar to their phone. If their phone works, they use it. If it doesn't work, and they just put it aside for two hours and they check it again. If you tell this to an HPC sysadmin, yeah, the cluster is down, but I don't really care. I'll just check it, check it again tomorrow. They have a totally different view on things. It's easy to overlook that, again, from the point of view of the researcher. That's incredibly true. So you have the HPC admin who cares a lot about optimizing how people are running jobs, and then you have the researchers who just sort of want to get it done. And that's definitely how I remember graduate school and leaving you know, thousands of jobs to run overnight. The idea about open source, what I was thinking is that there's a kind of research software engineer that's sort of a generalist that works with researchers and is primarily focused on solving those problems, but they may encounter a common problem that people hit all the time, but maybe they don't realize that it could be better. And then that research software engineer might start some open source software project to sort of address it. EasyBuild would be a great example. I guess it's more on the administrative side, but you can imagine if yeah. there's something similar to that that a user ran into, then you know you could say, hey, I can I can make a tool that could help with this and then go out and program and GitHub and magic. Yeah, I think I think you see this happening all the time that people have an idea and maybe even over the weekend they start playing with some code that say, hey, I could make a library out of this and maybe help some other people. This happens in the system administration world as well. And another example next to EasyBuild that, that came from CSES, the Swiss Computing Center, is the Reframe project where they look into making regression testing of scientific software a lot easier on HPC systems. So that's certainly something that a lot of tooling is missing for and that could be done a lot better. When they first told me that they were working on a project like this, I told them to be careful because they may start a community around it, which means they will have to manage the community and deal with incoming contributions. And it adds a lot of extra work. It's really fun. It's really interesting. But yeah, it, it can explode like kind of happened with EasyBuild. Starting a community can be very dangerous. To what extent do you see most HPC groups sharing their software? Do they share it enough? Should they share it more because it could potentially create a community and help people? Or is their strategy optimal because they really can't take on that extra work? I think each team should decide that for themselves. So with EasyBuild, we actually never had the intention to start a community. We did feel that maybe the tool could be useful to others, but we were actually mostly pushing it out there to get feedback from other people. 
and we were sort of expecting that people would come to us and say, why are you starting this thing from scratch? There's this other tool, this other project that everybody else is using and you're trying to reinvent the wheels. Don't do this, use this other thing. That didn't happen at all. People in Europe at first started picking up on EasyBuild, started trying it quickly, sort of over lunchtime, just installing it and telling it to install some software and then getting back from lunch and saying, oh, wait, this thing actually did something. So this, this could be useful. From then on, it really snowballed into a bigger community, which has been really interesting, not only because of EasyBuild itself, but we're really built an, a pretty good network in the HPC community thanks to the EasyBuild project. So even if we're stuck with other things, like if we have issues with Slurm or whatever other tools or other projects that are actively used in the HPC community, we usually have contacts inside of the EasyBuild community that we can talk to. So it, it has helped us quite a bit with building our network. Speaking of networking, that makes me think of conferences, and I really want to ask you about this. Some of our listeners are probably not familiar with FOSDEM. Can you tell us a little about it, how you've participated and you've gone through to make your amazing talks? <laughs> okay, so FOSDEM is a big open source. It's not really a conference. I would say it's a meeting, a meetup, which is organized in Brussels every year. It's special in, in a number of ways. So it's always in Brussels. It's always the first weekend of February. But during the weekend, it's two days, and it's a meeting where you just walk into and you start attending talks. So there's no registration. It's fully free and open, so you don't pay anything to attend the meeting. You just walk onto the campus of the University of Brussels, where it's organized, and you start attending talks. Whatever you want to go to, you go to. And it's really anything open source, so it goes from kernel developers, Linux kernel developers, up to GNOME and KDE developers. I've been organizing an HPC and big data dev room there for a couple of years now. So it's really everything across the board uh, in terms of open source, which makes it a really interesting place. At some point you're having a beer with a web developer and you have no clue what they are doing. And then you're trying to explain them the concept of these big HPC systems where you have thousands of users logging into your server and they don't really get the idea why you would have other people accessing your server. So you, you get into really interesting discussions because of the broad community that you have there. And there's also, since you're in Belgium, there's beers all over the place. So you have literally bars next to the uh, rooms where they organize talks. So people are sitting and talk, sipping beers. It's a really nice place to be. Yeah, I have to figure out some way to go some year. So what change do you hope to see in the next five, 10, I guess I'll let you set the time frame in terms of research software, where research software can include software for HPC? I would like to see even more collaboration on things that is, that is going on already. And we're, we're working on some of that in the EasyBuild community. So this is specific to EasyBuild and getting software installed in, in a good way that is both well-performing and very easy for users to access and use. We now have a tool that works pretty well and helps people a lot to install scientific software, but I think we can take it one step further. And there's examples of that in Compute Canada, for example, they have basically a shared software stack. So they install software only once in a shared file system, and then everybody else mounts this file system. And you can, even in the cloud, you can set up a cluster really quickly and have it provisioned with a whole bunch of scientific software that's installed in an optimized way. More collaboration is going to be really important because one thing we've been seeing in the last couple of years is an explosion in the number of installation requests that we're getting. Certainly in bioinformatics, for example, 
new tools keep popping up every week. It, I have the feeling that bioinformaticians just start a new project every week and then try to get other people to use it. And every now and then they're successful. And so we're getting more and more installation requests. More and more different domains, different fields of research are picking up on HPC, which means we're getting a bigger variety of tools and software that we have to install. And I think we'll have to collaborate more in order to be able to cope with that. This sounds like a good problem to have. It sounds like job security. <laughs> if someone is listening right now and they want to get involved with Easy Build, what's sort of a few first things that they might do? A couple of things they could do is they could join the Easy Build Slack channel. So we're very welcome and very happy to answer any questions they may have. We have an Easy Build channel on YouTube as well, where we try to collect all the Easy Build presentations that we have. So we have a yearly Easy Build user meeting. And up until now, we've recorded all the presentations that we've had there. We've posted them all on YouTube. So if people want to get a feel of what Easy Build is and what the community looks like, what people are doing with EasyBuild and how they are combining it with other tools, they could definitely take a look there. And if they are interested in getting some help with getting their software installed, they should just yeah, install EasyBuild and give it a go, see if it works for them. And even if it doesn't work for them, let us know, reach out, and so we can figure out how we can improve the project and make it easier for people to pick up news. Great. So we're coming up on time. I have just a few more questions. Your username on GitHub is Vogel, and I'm not sure if I pronounced that right. What does that mean? That's an interesting question. It doesn't really mean anything. Sometime in the 90s, I started being active on the internet, and I noticed that everybody else was having these funny nicknames. So I, I tried to come up with something myself. And I just asked my girlfriend at the time, like, give me a funny nickname that I can use to play around with my internet friends. And she just shouted Google, and I still don't know what it really means. I started using that, and it, it stuck. Maybe it means that you like to bogey. <laughs> yeah, I don't, know. I don't think it really means anything. But I do notice it's the last name of some people on the web. Whenever I need to create an account, I try to use this as a nick, and sometimes it's already taken, so it, it does mean something somewhere. So to summarize your talk, or one of your talks that you gave at FOSDEM, how do I make my package manager cry? <laughs> yeah, so many people like this presentation. It was a bit of a risk. I had this idea, let's try to explain to people, and certainly at FOSDEM, because I'm sure many people who attended the talk at FOSDEM had no idea what kind of pains you have to go through with scientific software on, on HPC systems. I wanted to do a different kind of talk at FOSDEM once and just see what would happen. If people would get the message, if I would go fully sarcastic and apparently they got it. What do you have to do to make your package manager cry? You should do everything that goes against best practice. Be very creative when you're versioning your software. Try to use as many dependencies as you can. Try to modify those dependencies slightly so people can't just use whatever they have installed already, but you need something else. Use build tools and installation tools that nobody knows about, or if they know about them, try to use them in the wrong way. So CMake is a good example of this. I'm, I'm not a big fan of CMake myself, but I think that's usually because people are, aren't using it the way it's supposed to be. So they're just very creative and they try to hack around in these CMake files until it sort of works for them. And then they push it out there and they expect people to install it that way. And sometimes you're fighting CMake more than it's actually helping you, certainly if you're installing other people's software. The main example I always use is TensorFlow. So TensorFlow comes out of Google. 
Google has this build tool called Bazel, which they are very happy with. And it worked really well for Google. But once TensorFlow started becoming popular and, and people wanted to build TensorFlow from source, they weren't very happy with Bazel at all. So it, it's a very different tool. It works in a very different way. And I think it works really well in a specific setting, but it's not something you can use for most projects. And so people are actually fighting the tool all the time, even though it has some very cool features that Google uses, it, yeah, but don't really apply to others. I have definitely fought with TensorFlow and created containers with one version that the next time I run them, they don't work anymore because something has changed and there's some underlying dependency. But You mentioned containers and that's another interesting aspect. That's also a sort of escape hatch that people have been using or have been trying to use to get their software installed once and then run it anywhere, which is a very interesting goal to have. In my experience, it doesn't really work, especially not the way people are using containers now. So it's more of of an escape hatch. And sometimes I say containers are a symptom, not a cure. So it's just a way of workaround that people have been using, but it doesn't really fix anything. So you still need to install the software in the container. And if you're not doing that in a good way and you want to rebuild the container for whatever reason, a couple of weeks later, you'll still be in trouble. It solves some things or it works around some of the problems, but it's not really a very good overall solution. Exactly. It's like the pirate ship that pulled up behind the castle and you think it's a great escape and then you escape and then you realize you're on a pirate ship and this is a terrible (laughs) idea. I've thought of a few ways that I could make containers cry because, you know, I want to make my containers cry generally and I want to run them by you and get your feedback. So you ready? Yeah, sure. Okay. So number one. Hide your executables somewhere in the container and see if the user can find them. Number two, (laughs) install software in Root's home for a singularity container and don't tell them about it. Laugh at them when they can't find it and call them names that you'd see on Reddit. (laughs) Three, keep all of your environment secrets in the container because they're going to be there when you lose them. Four, have the entry point be a direct start of a really complicated pipeline that will create files, folders, and otherwise cause madness without telling your user anything about it. And finally, (laughs) pick random containers on Docker Hub and run them with privileged because you really want to boost their self-esteem. Yeah, that's a good point. This sounds like a very good talk for FaultBelm. So this has been (laughs) A containers dev room at FOSDEM for a couple of years now. I'm sure this could be an, an, a talk that people would like to see. Sounds like it'd be really fun to give too. So Kenneth Bogle, Mr. Bogle, thank you so much for being on RC Stories. You are awesome. Keep being awesome. If there's ever any kind of thing that the research software engineering community, like the official USRC or UKRC community can help with, yell it out and People are excited and they'll probably help. So yeah, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much, Vanessa. And I hope I I get to meet you at Fulton sometime. Yeah, me too. I'll work on it.